On this episode, Mr. Worrell tries to change Ed's mind about affirmative action. This is The Bipartisans. We're out on the patio outside Lower Heath today. It's a beautiful sunny day, and we have Ed Martin and Mr. Worrell out here for a discussion on affirmative action. All right, Eddie, let's get it started. So, Mr. Worrell, I do not support affirmative action. I was wondering if you could change my mind about that. Okay. Uh, first, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, this is exciting. It's fun to be up here on the patio in the shade on a nice day. Good use of the sunshine. Um, and sure, let's talk and I'll keep an open mind and I trust that you'll keep an open mind about affirmative action. Why don't we uh, start by narrowing it down a little bit and see if we don't have to common ground about facts, basic sure. facts. All right, would you acknowledge that there is a, a discrepancy or an, an equity in graduation rates from college when it comes um, to, say, uh, white people and black students? Yeah, statistically, yes. And between white students and Latino, Latina students? Sure. Yes, Charles? Oh, sorry. Uh, let the record state that somebody distracted me during this. All right, so we can both agree factually that there's a discrepancy. There's an inequity in the percentage rates of graduation. I, I don't. Race. I don't like the term inequity. I, I don't want to. Well, I'm, I'm using it not in a racially loaded way. Okay. I'm just saying that they're not the same. They're not equal. Yeah, yeah. It's an inequity. Right. Um, well, I guess the next logical question from that would just be: um, Do you believe that the reason for this inequity? Um, why don't we say that there are, for the sake of simplicity, maybe three options. Um, do you think that this discrepancy is due to something intrinsic to a race, extrinsic, or a combination of both? And by intrinsic, I mean like a racial characteristic. Extrinsic, I mean solely because of the community or these external factors. And the third option is some sort of blending. Yeah. If that's an oversimplification pushed I mean, back against me. I would think that it's... Mainly, one of the biggest reasons is the rise in single motherhood, um, uh, especially in the African-American community, because that has now reached 70%. Um, and the likelihood of somebody graduating high school um, while having a single mother decreases significantly. And in terms of a cultural aspect, um, that is there, I mean, obviously 70% is very high, but even in, in the Latino community, um, it, is, it is higher than in the white community as well. You're talking now about the statistic about single mothers? Um, that that yes. being higher? Well, it's no, I, I don't want to say necessarily single mothers because that's not an exact figure, although the, the figure is around 70%, but that's more children out of wedlock. Right. Well, I wonder, I, I don't have any information about that particular statistic, but I wonder, do you have evidence that that is causal rather than corollary, that somehow not having a dad in the picture results in lower graduation rates? Well, okay, here's what I would say. Would, would you say uh, when people are financially insecure, that leads them to having lower graduation rates? That's an interesting way of phrasing it. And I wonder, I just, in, in an effort to answer your question, I think that there is 
that there are data to support the claim that lower income households are have disproportionately lower graduation rates than mm -hmm. higher income houses? That's what you're asking? No, no, no. In what I'm saying, I'm, I'm saying, uh, would you agree that um, for the most part, uh, having a single parent leads to people being like um, single being financially insecure? Yes, when there is uh, single family households. I don't have that data. But I mean, statistically, I can imagine, though, yeah. if you're having... I mean, going off a logical basis, it's been proven that, obviously, financial status differs in, in how uh, how your education is, mm -hmm. um, for the most part, um, how well-educated people become. And so I would say that's a direct causation because there have been numerous studies that say that... Um, uh, one significant from the Brookings Institute that listed uh, under one of its three main causes... Um, with, um, like giving birth to a child out of wedlock mm -hmm. leads to poverty. All right. Well, and I, again, I don't have any information about that. I do think you're taking a jump by drawing a direct connection between single parenthood or growing up, rather, with a single parent um, and graduation rates that I, I can see that um, in order to get there, you take two steps, right? Mm -hmm. One is to lower income households, which I think is logical if you're having the uh, just number of people who can make money, yeah, and then from there um, into college admissions. I mean, there is. There, but I think. Oh, go ahead. I, I I don't have the exact study in front of me, but I'm sure I would be highly surprised if there wasn't a causation towards it, or if other social scientists didn't find causations. Okay, so in other words, just rewinding a little bit, that's one of the intrinsic qualities you were pointing to, rather than an extrinsic quality. Is that right? What do you mean? Do, do we, are you saying like I think it's inherently because of race, or no, no, no. That that's okay. I just want to make you, sure. I, mean, I don't want to. Out, no, and I'm not trying to trap you or anything. Yeah. Um, no, I was asking about. Do you think there's the discrepancy in graduation rates because of something intrinsic, like inside a culture? Or I, I do think there's. Well, I think it's interesting because thereof. if you look at uh, single motherhood rates, it was falling up until the '60s. Um, and there have been some uh, some economists, uh, like Thomas Sowell, for instance, who credits um, largely kind of like the rise of the welfare state, uh, that it actually made it a lot worse in the African-American community. Um, and that led to the rise of single motherhood. Um, so I do think there's some credibility to, to that. Okay. Well, and I, just for the sake of the broader argument, I think we should move past this particular point, sure. um, because none of us, neither one of us has numbers in front of us when it comes to it. Uh, as I mentioned, just, you know, for the record, I think that's a bit of a leap. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sure how much you can sort of just, I mean, like, I almost don't want to move on from that question about the welfare state either, but I think we, we should talk about the topic at hand. Okay. Um, so we've acknowledged, we we share the fundamental uh, belief that there is an inequ in inequity in a mathematical sense mm -hmm. in graduation rates. Yeah, absolutely. And um, as far as what created that inequity, maybe that's where we begin to have differences in opinion. Uh, another factual thing, uh, just to get it off the table, um, would you acknowledge that part of the issue with college enrollment and college graduation and minority groups falls not part of the responsibility for that falls not on the colleges but on high schools. Oh yeah, I, I do think there's uh, a large issue with 
at high schools, um, as well as kind of like in terms of educational equality. Um, something I don't believe in is like the idea that if you come from a wealthier part of town, you somehow get a better education. I actually believe in that a state should be obligated to give, and a city should be obligated to give every school the, the same amount of money per student. Mm -hmm. um, and there shouldn't be the additional funding that exists. Because, uh, I mean, coming from New Haven, I, I've seen a lot of that. That um, I don't, I think it just makes schools worse in general. The discrepancy in funding, you mm -hmm. mean? Mm -hmm. So are you familiar with the Connecticut case, the Connecticut Coalition for Justice and Education versus REL, former Governor no. REL. This was. Um, Wait, um, was this a recent one? Uh, decided in 2016. Oh yeah, no, I, I do. Uh, that was with Bridgeport School District, right? That was one of the examples used to talk right. about how two counties right next to each other on the shoreline, in the state with the highest per capita income, mm -hmm. how they could have such right. different. Uh, so you're you're familiar with that case? And yeah. No, I I agree. I agree with the. Point? Yeah, I do. I do. Okay. I, I think it's an inherently unequal to uh, give people better education based on the value of their homes or, or how much they pay in tax. I mean, the the point of taxes is that you're helping the whole community, not just right. you know, where you live. Right. And the way that they've divided property taxes is over either arbitrary or I think we can both agree goes back to a time when. Um, suburban areas were just um, coming into fruition. Right. And so I think another debate we might have sometime is about whether or not redlining had an impact mm -hmm. on property taxes. Um, but I, I wonder, given that you acknowledge the fact that some high schools aren't preparing students as well as other high schools, where um, we talked about the responsibility falling to the high schools. Mm -hmm. um, but should, in essence, the sins the father damn the son? So what I mean by that question is, should students from a high school that doesn't get adequate funding be yep. forced to go to lesser colleges because they did not receive I, preparation? I mean, my point is that um, I think people should go to college and be successful out of college. Uh, and in my opinion, what happens with affirmative action is that while colleges, I, I think the intention is to gain enrollment of minority students. I mean, well, this obviously actually, can we rewind a little bit? Okay. The, my question's more directly, like before we even jump into that. Okay. Should um, inadequate, unjust, underfunded high schools, yeah. should, graduate, should graduates of those schools be forced to go to lesser universities because of? I believe students should go to schools uh, to which they are academically qualified based on things like GPA and test scores. Okay, but again, I guess, you know, we're, we're talking about um, causation here, and if you go to an underfunded school, well, mm -hmm. let, let's take, let's pause for a moment and take Hopkins as an example. Okay. Uh, when you were in ninth and 10th grade, you got a day off in the fall for testing. Yep. And that was to take the PSAT? Yes. And the PSAT is what? The practice SAT. Yeah. And what is the point of making students take a PSAT, which is not a mandatory I mean, test. to gain exposure to the SAT. Yeah, it's preparation. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there's exposure to preparation, I think, throughout your time at Hopkins. Maybe not explicitly in a, like a one-on-one -on -one tutoring session, but okay. I, I think 
generally speaking, you're pretty well prepared. Um, one of the things you just listed as a criterion for getting into a particular college is mm -hmm. uh, the GPA, and another criterion would be your SAT scores. Mm -hmm. um, both of those are seemingly objective, right? Mm -hmm. That they both produce raw I numbers. I understand what you're kind of getting to is that the test scores. Um, I mean, the one thing about the PSAT, though, is that it's widely available to most public schools. Um, oh, I, there's no doubt about that. But I'm talking also about the preparation that goes into it beyond just the presence of the PSAT. What do you mean? Well, uh, things like English class where you learn vocabulary. Uh, all, all of these opportunities where also um, your advisors receive packets to give you that are practice questions. That sort of thing in the college counseling department. I believe the the communicates about PSAT. The SAT. I believe the PSAT practice packet is given to everyone who takes the PSAT. Mm -hmm. um, and I also don't. I don't see how it. Um, I mean, if you're talking about, if you want to look at standardized testing, it it is an effective way to distinguish who has better skills. I mean, if you're looking at, um, kind of inherently, right. Because I, I understand that people can be tutored and then do better, but for the most part, the SAT is fairly accurate. Well, I, I would agree with that partly, and that I do think that it can be reflective of a student's capabilities. But I'm wondering, though, um, isn't the difference between um, somebody who receives tutoring for the SAT and someone who doesn't, Part of what you're testing for the person who learns, who goes to tutoring, is whether or not they can learn from a teacher. Whereas with the other student, you might be testing, for instance, their raw ability mm -hmm. that hasn't been interfered with by a, a teacher, so yeah. to speak, and that's putting it politely. Um, so students go into the SAT with a variety of backgrounds, a variety of pep preparation, right. and it can be stunningly uh, disparate, right? Mm -hmm. that they, they can have entirely different experiences going into it. Um, so what I'm trying to sort of guide our conversation to is that I, I think GPAs and SATs, while they're objective in the sense that they provide numerical data mm -hmm. that you can compare to other students' numerical data, and then you can look at schools and compare schools, nevertheless, I think that there's a lot of moving parts and variability that go into producing that number. Um, okay. Have you looked into the differences in SAT scores, say, between Bridgeport Public Schools and then Fairfield Public Schools? Um, I have, actually. Uh, it was a while ago, but there obviously is a large discrepancy. There's a large discrepancy between Fairfield and New Haven as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know what to say to that because people always gain advantages in some ways. And I don't know if there's a way to eliminate that. All I can say is that I think the, the college board is working to alleviate that um, mm -hmm. by offering something like Khan Academy's free, um, I mean, they have free uh, test prep. Um, and I, I, th I think that's a terrific They also, they offer, uh, you cannot get, you used to, I believe, be able to buy like SAT materials. Mm -hmm. You can still buy the book, but all the tests, the practice tests are available online. They um, which I think is great because anybody can study them for free. Yeah, and I, I think that it's, it's also important, and I don't want to go down this path, but um, you know that just brings to mind sometimes you're dealing with students who don't have access 
to online resources when they're outside of school, um, which may yeah. seem like, you know, a decades ago problem, but in fact, it's something that Hopkins even has to deal with, um, mm -hmm. where you wouldn't think that that was an issue. Um, so I think we can both agree that um, <clears throat> the school districts themselves play some sort of a role in the students' overall performance on the SAT. Right. And I'm not yeah, so no, absolutely. beyond that. Yeah. So I, I think we've actually established a lot of common ground. Yeah. Um, and then I, I guess where we begin to diverge is how to address these issues. Yep. And I think maybe we can both agree right now to table for another time a discussion of how we can solve or begin to resolve this issue in secondary education, sure. namely high schools. So let's focus mainly on affirmative action in colleges. Right. And maybe in... Uh, graduate and professional schools, if you want to. Okay. I'm thinking about law schools. That's okay. Yeah, law school has the most, like quantifiably, they have the most affirmative action. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think my stance is that I understand kind of um, the intent behind affirmative action. I, I think it, um, I, I may question part of it, um, but if we're talking about the effectiveness of executing that intent, and, and actually getting people to, getting students, especially minority students, to succeed, uh, affirmative action is, it does a very poor job at it. Are you talking about the mismatch? Oh, no, mismatch, here? yes. Okay. I mean, and that, I mean, it's really more evidence-backed than anything. I would, I would question um, the ways in which it's concretely evidence-backed. Okay. Um, and namely, I'll, I'll just lay out my argument for that now, is almost a reprisal of what we were talking about earlier, which is um, something that's a corollary and something that is causal uh -huh. in nature. Um, I think, thinking back to uh, Justice Scalia's comments um, shortly before he died about the University of Texas mm -hmm. system, um, which caused quite, quite a stir, as Scalia was wont to do, was that was one of his major oppositions? <coughs> excuse me. Yes. Uh, to affirmative action. Yes. Yeah. That it, it led to this idea of mismatch. Um, I lost my train of thought. But oh, oh, my opposition to that is, um, I think pointing out statistics of uh, success in that field. Um, ironically, chooses only one factor in discussing the success or failure. And ironically, that factor is race. That mismatch, proponents of mismatch, of the principle mm -hmm. that that exists, ironically, only look at race when considering. Well, I mean, you can actually, you can look at it in factors. a multitude of things. Um, you can consider it on student-athletes. You can, but you can Scalia consider did it, not, and because, Thomas I mean, did not. it was also, the case was on race. It was, it was the inclusion of, I mean, so I don't really well, understand the, what they were supposed to do then. No, the case was that Abigail Fisher believed that it was race. Yes. When in fact she had trash SAT scores. No, I agree. Um, but the question was of race. So they were answering the question to race. Right. Um, not to, you know, things like athletic ability mm -hmm. or, um, I, I mean, alumni status as well. You could easily include that. Well, there's, um, why don't we... Just do a little yes or no about that. Do you support legacy admission priority? 
I will say that I, I used to, but um, kind of after thinking about it, I, I don't. Why is that? Uh, it's not, it's not uh, intellectually consistent with my argument against affirmative action. So, okay. I mean, giving somebody inherent um, kind of benefit uh, towards something that they have no control over, and it's not very fair. So, what about the fiduciary interest of the school? I mean, right, right. I, I understand that, um, but with a lot of these universities, like I mean, if you're talking about Yale or Harvard, um, which the the Ivy Leagues often are uh, kind of credited for having the most kind of heavy bias in affirmative action, um, mm -hmm. they don't need the money. I mean, they do, but they they kind of don't. Well, they, they, they say they do. <laughs> yes. But, yeah, they don't. Yeah, it, it doesn't make that much of a difference. All right, so uh, we can just go ahead and shelve legacy admissions. Um, I, I, too, am opposed to them, um, though not for, like, intellectual uh, balance. Rather, in, instead, I, I think I'm, I'm opposed to it in a sort of, in a class sense. Okay. Um, and I think that it's in many ways a sort of inverted affirmative action mm -hmm. um, where they come from More privilege. intense I mean, yeah. privilege. Um, so back, back to the Fisher uh, versus Texas case, um, just thinking about Scalia's comments there that the mismatch and whether or not race was a part of it, um, his, and speaking about affirmative action before, and I'm thinking here about um, Rotter versus Hollinsburg, is that right? Is that the name of the case? Um, Sandra Day O'Connor wrote the. Is it Rats v. Bowling? Yeah. Uh, there's Rots? two. Yeah. yeah, it's two Bowling. Okay. Um, right. Is that uh, they they talk specifically about a a holistic look at yeah. an applicant's resume. Well, uh, and I mean, even talking about how you cannot, it's unconstitutional to look exclusively at race and yes. make and that goes back to Backey, the Supreme Court case yeah and 78 but uh, my, my point okay, of the the holistic review is that it's kind of false right I, I mean and that and that's a common complaint across the admissions process at least with the the what rise of the okay so if you look at something like the the common application um, that has allowed people to apply to so many more schools which is arguably a good thing and arguably a bad thing right because most of these schools now have a, a massive influx. Um, and what they're finding okay. is that these schools are now spending less and less time on their applications and, and kind of finding out who they're going to admit. And so if that's true, I, I think we can both agree that how then are they being more holistic? What do you mean if that's true? Is it true or is it not true? Um, they found that it is true, but... Who's they? Okay, so if you read about like former admissions directors, there was... Uh -huh. um, the fellow from the University of California system? No. No, mo I mean, most most larger state schools um, really rely on test scores and GPA. Uh, many do. Um, no, th these were kind of uh, smaller uh, liberal arts, like top colleges, mm -hmm. um, where they said they, they took seven minutes on an application. I, I believe one of them was Bucknell. Um, and the, they, they were proud of that because they've streamlined... Um, kind of their process, but my point is, how holistic can they? They claim to be holistic. How holistic can you be if you're only looking at an application for seven minutes? 
Well, I, I think that's in many ways a, a, a question rooted in false equivalency that, or like a, a false corollary that somehow by spending more time means that it's more holistic. I think um, if you if you just consider the fact that they they're receiving twenty thousand applications and they have to read X number a day. Yeah. Um, I think you can glean a lot about a candidate um, just by looking at the numbers, which may not be fair. Yeah. But I'm just saying from an admissions point of view, um, because the Common App enables um, the Abigail Fishers of the world to apply to the Harvards of the world. Yep. Um, without, maybe that's, sorry, that's a little mean. No. Um, There's nothing restricting them. Yeah. And I... You have to, um, in order to, so just just a side note really quickly, I, I think they're spending seven minutes or however long yep. on an application that they dismiss. On an application that they like, they later have to reach a quorum. And that's the same admission standard across all the Ivy League, that they mm -hmm. have the same admission standard that eventually everybody goes into a room mm -hmm. and they have to have unanimous consent for every single application. Yep. So I think the burden for admission is obviously much higher than the um, than the sort of ease of rejection. Sure. All right. But nevertheless, regardless of, of that uh, discussion, the, the fact remains that singling out race as mm -hmm. the deciding factor and as not just a deciding factor but as the primary factor going into it is not constitutional. Right. And if that happens... The school should be taken to the Supreme Court. I'm not here yeah. to argue against that. No, I, I understand that. But um, there is no doubt that uh, if there is, like, you can't directly, like, give points to a student. But um, what the Supreme Court has found is that it, it's the school in the school's best interest to uh, have a, a education with diversity. Well, do you agree with that? I would say that there's very little empirical evidence to actually show that that's correct. In what sense? Um, like, what, what sort of uh, data would you be looking for? Like, starting salary five years out of college or something? Or No, I mean, if you if you kind of, I mean, there, there is, there, the point is that there is none. Because, so, uh, there's this constant claim that diversity makes education better. My point is that nobody's shown very much empirical evidence to show that that's true. Well, and here... Um, I'm going to make an assumption about your political beliefs and that mm -hmm. you identify as a conservative, I'm presuming, um, more or less. Yeah, I, I would say that's fair. So would you have felt differently about Hopkins had you had a conservative teacher along the way, say in like an English class or something? I mean, I have had a conservative teacher. Mm -hmm. No, I'm not, so I'm not trying to say that, yeah. but I, I'm saying, do you at times feel frustrated that there's not more political diversity in, say, assemblies? Um, no, actually, I don't, my issue of frustration is, uh, how the school chooses to deal with that. What do you mean, deal with one-sidedness, or? Um, no, the, the school making a, a, like, let's say, like, political statement. Um, I, I, if people want to express their opinions, I mean, I knew coming in, into Hopkins that it was not, you know, like a conservative place. Um. That's a nice way of putting it, Yeah. I mean, and, and that's Not, fine. Yeah, that's fine. I don't have, I don't have a, I would never get mad for people expressing their opinion. There's a difference between that and as an institution 
taking a, a one-sided opinion. That, that's where okay. I drop the line. So I, I guess that, that kind of veered away from the argument a little bit, but I, I understand what you mean. Um, my, my point was more that um, diversity can show up in a number of ways. Right. And I think there are small ways um, in your own life that exposure to diversity, again, not just of, of race and religion, but also of political persuasion. Right. Go ahead. But I mean, in general, I think when we're considering diversity, at least in the, um, once again, this, the, the case came down to race. And so when well the case came down to race because Abigail Fisher's lawyers yes that was but that was the that question was that was the question asked before the court and in any affirmative action case that that's the question asked um, you know racial diversity okay and and that's what the court has consistently kind of ruled on is racial diversity okay so is that also at the crux of your opposition to affirmative action what do you mean like is race the the linchpin, so to speak. Well, I mean, if we're talking about people who gain emissions on affirmative action, I think race is typically the one that is chosen. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me your opposition to affirmative action in, yeah. in like a, a sentence? Yeah, it, it um, allows for student. I mean, what I think is that it's greedy on the hands of the college. It's what? It's greedy on the hands of the college greedy. because they want to kind of raise their numbers. And the students so are the what, ones who pay the price. How does that benefit them financially? Oh no, it's greedy for their self-image, right? Like if you're talking about, not not necessarily saying for money, but uh, they they want to present themselves as diverse. Is mm -hmm. what you're saying? Okay, keep going. I'm sorry to interrupt. Sure. Um, and what happens is students get left behind, and they aren't. Um, it's unfortunate because the schools don't support them at all. And that, that's the reality of it, is that what you have is people coming into schools that they're um, lagging behind in, and they continue to fall behind, and they don't consistently stay in something like a STEM major. Um, and the results out of that are, are students who either change their original intention of major, um, or they drop out altogether. Well, and there, there are data that you can point to to support individual things. Um, what you've just said about retention within the STEM uh, majors of students of color, uh, graduation rates. So would you would you say that your major opposition to affirmative action is the existence of mismatching? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there. Um, I mean, the whole action of affirmative, like the whole idea of affirmative action, is to bring people who come. This is what I don't understand. It's like the people when they argue for it is that they claim that if you find equally qualified people, and my point is if you're compromising something like SAT scores or GPA, they're not, the candidates aren't equally qualified inherently. Like that's the basis that affirmative action is kind of used on. It's the pedestal that's built on. Right. But I think we both agreed earlier that there, there are a variety of factors that go into establishing GPA mm -hmm. and the SAT score. And so, um, to take what you just said, why don't we uh, zoom out for a moment and think about um, what sort of factors would you expect colleges to make a decision on? I mean, you're, you're yeah. closer to this so, than okay. I am, um, but 
they don't just make the decision based off of those two criteria. Well, I think because of grade inflation, GPAs are counting less and less. Okay. Um, so I would say that actually test scores are... I would agree with that when it comes to private academies. Or or if you're... Um, yeah, if you're talking about inner city schools, they don't have grade inflation in general. Um, that's why it's important to look at kind of uh, the school and their academic status um, and how... And I don't want to say prestigious, but I, I, I think um, the level that they're teaching to, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Well, so... In essence, hypothetically, just putting pause on the train of thought right now, would you advocate for a college council, for a college admissions officer, mm -hmm. um, in order to make an accurate choice? Let's say a private school A has rampant grade inflation, mm -hmm. and then public school B does not inflate grades. Yeah. And student from school A has a 3.8 GPA, and student at school B has a 3.6 GPA. Yeah. Would you advise that college counselor to keep in mind when contrasting Absolutely. the two? Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm so you would tell them to keep in mind the fact that, mentally speaking, you would need to deduct a few points, perhaps? What I would, um, yes, because what I, what I would ideally like is <coughs> a system to be put in place that kind of accurately shows um, inflation and deflation of grades and can make them so it is equal, right, that there is a standard. And so that's where standardized right. testing comes in useful, right, because the kid with a, a 4.0 from Hopkins is, is different from the kid with a 4.0 from Cross High School in New Haven. Um, they can be radically different students. And, right. and, I, and I think, too, even as we're talking about making adjustments, mm -hmm. you know, doing what Scalia would call jiggery-pokery with the numbers, uh -huh. uh, that nevertheless there's still – not accuracy in that, right? That it's still sort of an estimation. It would definitely be biased, but it, it would help uh, stop. It would it would definitely make it more even when contrasting yes. numbers, but there is no true. But you also comparison. have to look at you know something like the the kinds of classes being taught. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I so mean, and that's all in the school, right? Level. So I think the school has to be kind of evaluated. Um, that's what the schools that the applicants are coming from need to be evaluated because. If somebody is going to a school, I mean, like I said before, they might be unprepared coming with a 4.0 GPA, um, okay. no matter what school you come from. I, I mean, I don't know. It, it depends on the extent of the grade inflation. Um, well, let, let's go back for now to the idea of what a college admissions officer should look for. Yeah. So there's, there's the GPA, mm -hmm. and there's the disclaimer that GPAs are made up of a variety of factors that don't necessarily reflect the student's ability. Mm -hmm that sometimes they can reflect the politics of the school in question, uh -huh. the district of the school. All right, so moving past that, SATs, I don't want to keep beating this dead horse. Yeah. We can both agree that preparation can frequently lead to better results on, right, that it's been yeah. proven that preparing yeah, yeah, yeah. for the test yeah, yeah. improves your score. Um, one other note about the SAT, which I think we can both agree on, is that it measures certain skills and not other skills. Is science on the SAT, for example? They um, have... SAT2s? Well, no, 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 no. I mean, out of the SAT, they have kind of established that um, they can pull out, like, how you how good you are at, at scientific analysis. That is part of, like, the reading um, questions. Yeah, and I... But, I mean, I, you can I, talk I about can... the ACT, too. I mean, that actually has a science section, although... Yeah. I don't really think that has very much to do with science, to be honest. Um, well, and thinking about 
extrapolation of data. Yeah. Right. Again, that's not a uh, that's not anything that even comes close to precision. Right. Right. When you're you're arguing that there's no transitive property to say that the way that a student reads a passage and pulls information somehow uh, makes them good in a lab, but you can make a guess that well, if this student has a 1600, I'm guessing she can handle herself in a chemistry lab. Well, because the SAT target skills that students need to use all the time. Yeah. Um, and it does it, for the most part, fairly accurately. Um, otherwise, it, it wouldn't really be used. That's a, that's a different can of worms. I well, think, if I, you're I think the to... college board is deeply entrenched. I mean... Let, let's, move, okay. let's move on. Sorry. Um, my original question was about the factors college mm -hmm. admissions officers should take into account. And so we've gone over GPA and SAT, and we've both flagged respective problems mm -hmm. and uh, aspects that are advantageous mm -hmm. for decisions. What else should an admissions officer look at? Should they stop there? I mean, you know, it's hard because, truthfully, yes, I, I believe people, the point of going to college is to go for academic success, mm -hmm. um, and that should be the qualifications to get somebody in. Are you familiar with how the quota system originated? How it originated? No. I'm, I'm familiar with what it was, but not well, how it originated. So what, what was the quota system? Yeah, so you had a certain quota of students, um, so a quota of black students, quota of white students, Hispanic students, etc. Okay, the way you're framing that is to meet minimums, right? Um, that you want to meet, reach a quota of in order, yes, like to establish a minimum. The origin of quotas is actually the opposite. It's about not exceeding the maximum. Uh huh. Well, I thought it was just in general, like having. You want this amount of students, this percentage of students of that's this in, race. That's in essence what it's become when we talk about it. About, yeah. you know, that's sort of the popular um, usage of the word now. That uh -huh. you want to reach a quota in order to achieve a minimum. Yeah. You want at least this, but in fact, quota originally was you don't want to exceed that. Uh -huh. And this is from the early 20th century uh, when Yale tried to force. Jews mm -hmm. out of the admissions process. Yeah. And later on it became Asians, right? The uh -huh. so-called model minority. Yep. Where that is also um, has a direct impact on how students are evaluated for admission. Right. And by that I mean uh, there was on an admissions level a vast, vast discrepancy between how Jewish students performed in objective analyses mm -hmm. and how Asians and Asians and Asian Americans uh, performed on these objective analyses that eventually people who were being pushed out of these schools said well you need to look at more than just objective criteria and so I think just as as a little bit of, of history behind it I think that's important to keep in mind uh, when we're thinking about admissions okay is that there was a time when we went objective with scare quotes around it all the way. And now we have applied pressure on higher institutions to take into account more. That's why service mm -hmm. becomes a proponent. So would you advocate for a return to GPN SAT only? That in other words, you 
in essence, you sent a transcript well, to a yeah, school? Yeah, because um, what I'm, what at least the kind of data that, that goes behind mismatch finds is that um, when those things are considered, students go to the schools and, and overwhelmingly do poorly um, or aren't able to achieve what they originally wanted when they learned. When they're admitted objectively? Uh, no, when they're admitted through the holistic application process. Um, because when you give bias towards students, no matter the reason, you're it's essentially unfair. It's unfair to them, I think. I th the people who lose the most with the current state of affirmative action is the minorities. Do you have percentage differentials for mismatch? What percentage of say, African-American students in STEM dropout versus how many remain? I think you, you have that. Is it the likelihood? I mean, I think the best thing to look at is the UC schools. Um, when they did have affirmative action, the uh, retention rate amongst black students was 25%. And then after, it's around 75%. Um, now, and so although, yes, there are less black students going to UC Berkeley, fewer. Okay. Um, there are more successful students, right? And I think that's where it matters. And people going to other schools that, that aren't necessarily, I mean, as hard, that, that ends up being that they receive a better education because it's better than failing. It's better than what? Failing. Somebody dropping out. Why admit a student if they're going to drop out? Failing. Uh, oh, failing. Sorry. Okay, um, so we're back. We're back to the idea of, of mismatch mm -hmm. um, being the, the crux here. That somehow you are you're in, in essence a school using affirmative action does a disservice to students by asking them to punch up rather than fight on an equal. Yeah, yeah. State, because punching so up overwhelmingly, even if you look at grad schools, which is where mismatch theory kind of originates. Because um, I believe it was two economists who originally looked at the data. Uh, law school has some of the strongest affirmative action, like I, I said before. Um, and black students were twice as likely to fail the bar on the first time. And a majority of, of black students were in the bottom 20% of their class. And that's kind of a heartbreaking statistic. Because class rank is actually a, a better determinant of success um, than kind of what school you go to. That that raises the question of, uh, you know, would those students have been there were it not for affirmative action? And in other words, would, say, uh, the 15 to 25% who did remain within STEM or whatever mm -hmm. percentage did remain in law school and passed the bar, Yeah. Um, would they have been there had they not been afforded this opportunity? Well, I mean, if we look at the UC schools, that's a perfect example. Like, there are fewer um, minority students than there were, um, but there are people who are still there uh, who gain admissions completely on the basis of kind of what I discussed before, which is GPA and, and SAT, and they're doing drastically well. And then you have other students going in the UC system to, you know, not necessarily Berkeley, um, but uh, like UC Santa Cruz and other schools, I was reading one story about one of the UC schools actually um, having one of the highest minority retention rates that it's ever had. Um, 
and to me that that's a better determinant of success within minority students than uh, minority students accept it. Because just to say, you know, it's like the common argument against abortion um, or pro-life is that you're only you're only pro-life until the baby's born, right? <laughs> Well, and my point is, I just did not see that you're only you're only uh, pro affirmative action um, until the students admit it, right? Because then the schools don't don't seem to care. It's what the data shows. They're not offering the support that that would be needed. Ah, uh, I see what you mean. Right. Uh, I have, I have two uh, quick responses. That the first is to your your last point there. I think overwhelmingly at tier at the top tier schools, mm -hmm. uh, there have been revolutionary uh, programs within the past decade uh, which seek to address that same question. Um, mm -hmm. And that ranges from in Yale Graduate School mm -hmm. uh, to offering a sort of English as a second language boot camp yep. during the summer, uh, you know, for a basic thing like that, uh, for students who did not speak English at home or mm -hmm. who are international, um, to now the entire freshman class has to go through a, uh, a week-long student training mm -hmm. session. And this can range from things um, that we would consider as basic as taking notes mm -hmm. and staying organized, all, all sorts of things. So I, I think there's a movement to address just that second point. Um, there's a recognition of that, and I think there's a movement to address it. Uh, but I, I'd like to address mismatching now, again, with the idea that uh, correlation is not causation. And I know okay. that sounds uh, cliched, but it's it's essential to think about, particularly when you're pulling data uh, from decades ago, right? And when you're looking at these long trends, if you're looking at uh, the course of 30 years mm -hmm. of the results of affirmative action, say, on a particular school's admission and graduation rates, many factors are not taken into account. And so what I was talking about earlier is that the irony of that is uh -huh. that those who think and write about mismatch overwhelmingly look solely at race. Uh -huh. They're not taking into account um, things that I think you and I would agree on about um, should affirmative action look also at class. Right. Um, that they're fixated upon race as a determining factor. Which on the admission side is unconstitutional, and yet on writing about whether or not this is a fit for the student, whether or not the school is a fit for the student, it's ironically or paradoxically the only factor taken into account. Well, right, and so the because raw I, I, numbers clearly raw numbers cannot tell you the story behind a student. Yeah, which is I think one of um, an admission admissions officers mantras, yeah. right, that you cannot tell who a student is purely from GPA. If you looked at Khan's GPA, you might think that he's a, a talented student. Whereas if you ever spoke to him, <laughs> you'd know you're scraping the bottom of the barrel. Um, so I, I, I've not ever found um, evidence uh, that goes beyond uh, statistics for mismatch and what other evidence what, is supposed well, to be collected? Well, what I what I want to say is that 
a strange piece of evidence uh, for mismatch that would support that theory huh. is that while Scalia was a professor of law at, in Chicago, at mm -hmm. Chicago, excuse me, the only students he ever failed were African-American students. Okay. And he failed every single one he taught. I think he taught four, uh -huh. and they all failed uh -huh. his class. They'd done well in other classes. And so I, I think if you were to look at the data from that year, you would look at the data and say, oh, this was not a match for them. They were not up to snuff. They should not have been admitted. When in fact, there's sort of a, a different story behind that. Okay. Um, and I, I don't want to go down uh, another sort of conversational rabbit hole talking about discriminate, discriminatory practices within the classroom. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think the evidence tells a pretty compelling story. And the, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I think it's important to think about how that could lead you to believe that they were mismatched, when in fact those four students whom he failed had done tremendously well in other classes. Okay. And, and I, I, um, I'm trying to remember if I, about admission to the bar, but I, I can't think of that right now. Okay. But nevertheless, I, th I think th my point is that uh, there's stories behind there that aren't always uh, just succinctly contained by numbers. I mean, that's, I don't know, I feel like that's kind of choosing after you saying that Scalia was a racist. I mean, I, I, I don't necessarily think that's true. I, once again, I don't know the full story. I didn't see the tests mm -hmm. that were taken by the students. Um, and uh, it's interesting because then I'm like that's kind of an anecdotal uh, use of evidence. It is. Not? It is. And uh, so, I, like, I, my I freely admit is... that, and I, I'm not implying. Um, I think that I have enough anecdotal evidence to make somewhat of a conclusion about Scalia's racial views, and that I think I would probably disagree with him. I don't think that he was a member of the Klan. Um, but I, I brought that up just as one example, as a drop in the bucket, of how you could arrive at numbers that are not strictly um, causal, that are rather coincidental, corollary. Um, I mean, and just to keep that in mind when we think about I would the say idea that of mismatch. I would say that those students failed the class. I don't really know what else you can derive from that. You can take their grade. But like there are actual results that you can see with determining things like GPA kind of in college um, being a determinant of success as well as like something like class rank and um, you know sure it's not like they're looking at just one class but if you look at the overwhelming evidence that it, it's all classes right otherwise in law schools that like I said before the um, the majority of, of black students wouldn't make up or wouldn't be in the bottom 20 the, 20% of their class, right? Like, I, I think there is, a, like, a holistic, I know I criticized that word before, but kind of holistic uh, view towards um, mismatch because it, it really is looking at the success of students. I recognize that, and I, I think that richly, we're now on opposite, opposite sides of the table and that I don't think that mismatch takes a holistic view. 
Okay. I think, in fact, that it tries to pinpoint all the writings I've read about it, single out as a factor, race, rather than, for instance, I've never seen uh, subsections of data okay. uh, that delve into um, public versus private, okay. what districts, rather, the all right, data listen, start me, and stop Let at me counter race. that point. Yeah. This, this summer, um, you know, New York Times, they published a piece on affirmative action, and they're their kind of note on affirmative action was that it was solely on race. That's all the article was about. Does that mean that their article is not valid? Or... Yes. Because it only looks at race. Right. So that, you think that... That is, that is not what affirmative action is when it's okay. put into practice. If that is an admissions officer's theory of affirmative action, then it's unconstitutional. Okay. Since 1978, the Supreme Court found it as such. Well, then my question is then, how can you maybe see they that, were highlighting? How can you see aspect? the Asian student? I mean, how can you say race isn't a factor in admissions when it clearly is? You know, whether or not whether or not it's illegal, like, that doesn't I mean that. I never said that it was not a factor. Okay. But when I'm when I'm considering affirmative action, I'm using kind of the classic sense that race is used as a factor in admissions. Yes, it is a factor. Right, and so I mean, that's, that, is, that is something acknowledged in 1978. It's acknowledged again, and what is the case? Bollinger, oh. uh, Gratz v. Bollinger. There's two of them. Right, and so nobody's saying that race is totally discounted. Okay. But it cannot be the exclusive factor. In some cases, it may be one of the deciding factors, but it mm -hmm. cannot be taken well, in isolation. Well, so that my point is that it shouldn't be a factor at all. Because it, it doesn't, I just don't think it particularly, I mean, I think students should go where they're going to succeed, not where they're going to make the school publicize their, you know, their percentage of, of minorities. I, I think that's an assumption of intent on the part of a school that I, that might be fair um, in, a, in a cynical sense that schools wish to I mean, it's, it's fair in the way that they obviously, and I know you mentioned some programs before, but even recent data... With things like the you know STEM degrees, where students go into majoring in STEM and then they drop out of that major, uh, that's really recent data. That was like done by uh, I think Columbia and also by Duke. There's two studies, um, and both of them were kind of like published in 2014. So these programs haven't gone into extensive. I mean, I don't think they're doing a very good job at least. Okay. Of helping students because when it comes down to it if, if you're well when it when it comes down to it uh, we were talking about mismatch earlier as uh -huh. your main opposition to affirmative action but now you think that race should not be considered at all so does that mean that they should consider things like class things that are beyond GPA and SATs well I mean colleges have to consider class at least the amount somebody can pay most colleges right have to consider uh, how many students are paying full tuition, how many students are paying half tuition, how many students are paying at all. Um, but that's more of the school's function. My point is, how does the so amount of... the fiduciary of requirement of the school to consider class in terms of salary about if a school is not need-blind, they have to consider that to be solved. In other words. If they don't have the money, then yeah. Because, and, and if you look at, um, for instance, uh, oh boy, uh, Vassar College, Right has one of the highest. It's, it's considered one of the most financially accessible uh, colleges, 
um, you'll see that they have they do take into consideration how many students do we have to have who are full paying tuition. Well, that, and that's a reality not just in colleges but at secondary schools. It's a reality here mm -hmm. uh, that there is a finite financial aid fund, mm -hmm. and that if you exceed it, you begin to have problems making ends meet in right. the day to day workings of the school. So, putting aside just fiduciary. Putting, putting aside the desire of an institution to be solvent yeah. um, on a day-to-day -day basis, I think really the, the, the inconsistency that I, I see is both in terms of what admissions officers should consider, okay. um, what they shouldn't consider, and then what is the deal? What is your main opposition to affirmative action? So on the one hand, you said that there is this idea of mismatch, mm -hmm. um, that it's bad for the students, and that it's sort of the, like, greedy on the part of the school because they wish to portray this image as being racially diverse and inclusive, blah, blah, blah. Um, but then are you willing to say that admissions officers should look beyond the objective into things that are slightly more subjective, where a student comes from, that sort of thing? And if so, if you're willing to move beyond the objective, and again, scare quotes around objective, why can't race be one of those subjective I don't, things? I don't think you should move beyond that. I don't. I so mean, let's say that a student who grew up in a trailer in Appalachia uh -huh. um, who does very poorly on the math section uh -huh. of the SAT. Yeah. Let's say that her score is an 1100. Okay. She did well on the verbal, poorly on math. Um, her GPA reflects that at school, right? But what she really wants to do is go to a liberal arts college and become a writer. Mm -hmm. Should they dismiss her just based off of those objective results? If it's a college, say, like Bard, where she wouldn't have to take a math course or a science course. Should, I is mean, it, is it, keep going, sorry. Well, then the school shouldn't consider math SATs as part of their admissions. I think our, our time's up for now, but maybe we can go back to this. Sure. All right. Thank you. Thank you.